back to another impactful day on Impact the Education Leadership. This is episode 186. I'm your host, ID3 for Isaac Drum the Third. Today's panelists are Shawana Marshall, Michael Brown, Letitia Anderson, please, uh, and Dr. Mel. Uh, Shawana Marshall, please hello to the people. Hi, everyone. All right. Hello, hello. And Dr. Mel, please say hello to the people. Yes, good, uh, good evening. I'm Dr. Mel, and I am from Childhood Today. I generally work with school districts to help them um, manage the challenges of early trauma. Awesome, awesomeness. And Michael Brown, please say hello to the people. Hello, everybody. I'm a criminal justice instructor, online minister, self-defense instructor, uh, life coach, and spiritual mentor. Oh, it's going to be good tonight. And with that being said, Letitia Anderson, please say hello to the people. Hello, all. I'm Letitia Anderson, former District 1 trustee for Austin Independent School District, empowering parents and community members providing them with tools to run for office. Ooh, it's gonna, I told you it's going to be good today. Did I miss anyone? I did just want to share. Um, I didn't give a little bit about me. So I am a 20-year educator, and so I am. I did want to share that with everyone. So I'm excited to be on the show today. Um, I'm a veteran educator, and I'm just excited to take part in this today. Oh, my goodness. So many things went through my mind when I saw the topic for the day and I just want to the panel is open I want to open the panel up but when you got that topic addressing teacher cultures especially what was going on today with legislation in the United States with Congress with Supreme Court rulings what went through your mind when you saw the topic for the day addressing teacher culture who wants to go first I'll take that I'm sorry. Um, um, I would like to go first. Uh, so given the fact that I am a 20-year educator, when I saw it, it just immediately in my head, just uh, just a lot of thoughts went through my head. So after serving 17 years at the local level, but now the district level, times have changed so much over the 20 years that I've been in education. And I remember when I first came in that, you know, I'm a little old school. So the way I was raised, that is that what I took into my classroom, like moral expectations, um, values, all of that. And then also being respectful and mindful of like how you, you, you treat and talk to, talk to your, talk to your, um, your adults, your, your, your students in the classroom. So all of that for me, uh, was that old school mentality, but now so much has shifted. I'm just really appalled because I can't believe what I'm seeing. And the life of a teacher now is, it is extremely challenging. And so when I see the, the shift from the time that I came into where I'm now, that's why I will always advocate on behalf of educators. I may not be in the classroom, but I know what it is to actually uh, walk the walk and talk the talk. And so it's, it's changed tremendously. And I always tell people that it takes a joint effort. It takes the effort from the parents, from the students, and the school. One one entity can't do it by himself. And like you said, a lot of times today what we see, people are making decisions that have never even walked in the shoes of a teacher. So for me, I'm very passionate about this topic and, and, and I'm excited to be on this platform so I can be that voice for educators because I know what it was like for me being in that classroom and I'll always advocate on behalf of teachers. Ooh, that was so good. You know, this podcast is being listened to right now in 2,500 cities throughout the world and in 90 countries. Who, who, who's next? What was your thoughts when you got the topic for the night, for the day, <laughs> addressing teacher culture? Um, this is Letitia Anderson. Um, when I got it, uh, the first thing I said is, whoa. I can remember a time coming up through Austin ISD um, doing desegregation. And so dealing with the traumas of that, then coming onto the school board while for the, my first two years, I was the only African-American on the board. And so I had to carry all of that weight, not only for students, but for staff, because staff looked to me to be their voice. So when you talked about teacher culture and I'm out there, the information they give to me I bring that that voice to the board. And so if I'm hearing, hey, you know what, my campus, you know, this, that, the third, or fourth is going on, well, my, my principal 
may not want to talk about this touchy subject because it may touch on race. And so here's where my voice comes in. I don't say, you know what, so-and-so teacher told me that, but I just put it in the perspective of, okay, why? I want to understand the why. Why, why do you want to shy away from this? You know, this does speak to the culture on your campus because if you are afraid to lead, you are impacting the students on your campus because you hindering their opportunity to learn about so much. Like we talk about well-rounded students. How can students be well-rounded if you're not letting the teacher provide those opportunities to have those hard discussions? So that's the way I took it, but I really appreciate this. I really do. Oh, this is going to be fire. It's already fire. Who's next? We got the topic for today. Uh, uh, I'll go. Uh, Michael Brown. Uh, when I when I looked at this, so I'm a 28-year veteran of the Memphis Police Department. Uh, and the last place I worked before I became a teacher was in homicide. So I've been teaching for eight years. So... Uh, I come from that era, like she said, from the civil rights era when I went to a predominantly white college. So there's a there's a culture, a teacher culture of instructors and how they look at black students. So I came from that, became a police officer. When I dealt with students, I was seeing, especially when I was in homicide, uh, kids uh, coming up and, you know, committing murders. And they they left school in the ninth grade. We say they have a ninth grade education, but they can't read or write. So if they have problems reading or writing, they have problems with comprehending. So uh, the, 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 the culture of the school teacher has been watered down so much from when we were in school, then you're not allowed. There's barriers that's been set up that you're not allowed to go to to be able to talk to the student and try to lead them in a direction. Uh, I have never seen so many uh, students with behavioral plans uh, like I have these eight years that I've been in school, but I, I started to understand what I saw on the streets with the kids and what's going on in the schools. Uh, with, the, with the change of just the culture of society and teachers are not being trained to deal with that. Uh, and my training from being a police officer and people would think that, you know, it's a harsh negative training, but it is not that you're trained, you know, verbal de-escalation and conflict resolution. I mean, it's not always you and it's hard to be that person, but that's what the teachers are going to have to be trained that in the classroom, but also they're going to have to be unhandcuffed to be able to deal with the cultural change. Uh, on the outside, but how do we answer that question? But I, 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 I like the, 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 the question. Mm. And at least Dr. Mel, what's your thoughts about the topic? Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, I, I totally support what everybody has said. It is a very confusing and difficult situation and the teachers are feeling the brunt of it, right? I think they are more and more latent with, um, more requirements and expectations and sometimes unfortunately all of those expectations and requirements are in conflict with one another so when i think about culture i think about the feeling that each teacher gets when they enter the school building or when they interact with others in the district or when they work within their classrooms and that feeling either tells them that they're being supported or they're not being supported, that the challenges are up to them and only up to them and nobody else is going to help them with the challenges or the opposite, that there's a group culture that means that they will not be working alone. And I think that there's often a lot of confusion if, for instance, the message of the culture, but the behaviors of the culture are at odds, right? So what do they, they attend to, the message or the behaviors that are not jiving together? And I think that creates a lot of uh, consternation and stress. So my preference in dealing with all of this is to get down to what I call the process level. 
we have to have process and, and processes are just steps that one takes processes that show the teachers that this, these are the steps that are taken within the classroom, the district, the building to support them. Or these are the activities that are in place to help them figure out and address the challenges. And this, these are the things that we do when there's confusion so that we can clarify the, the, the uh, confusion. Uh, in essence, a teacher, in my opinion, has to feel like they belong to a place that is teacher-friendly. And if that's, <clears throat> if that's not supplied, everything else, I think, don't, doesn't work. When I look at the um, addressing teacher culture uh, paragraph uh, that Mr. Drone sent us, after the first sentence, there is you know, sentence after sentence of all the things that teachers are expected to do. And just reading those overwhelms me. And I support teachers, of course. I am no longer in the classroom, but I know that if I were in the classroom and I looked at this list, I would say, oh my gosh, it feels like I'm in this alone where people are telling me what I need to do, but they're it's becoming more and more difficult. So my stress level goes up. So if I was to provide some insight or some suggestions to leaders um, of teachers uh, or to the teachers themselves, I would say that it's important that they start knocking these processes out. You know, let's first work on this process and then this process and this process. And in that way, you build the culture where the teachers feel supported. Oh, that was so good. That was so good. Okay, since y'all are doing so well, I feel the need to throw a curveball. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the need to throw a curveball. Here we go. Let's talk about biases. Let's talk about implicit bias. Let's talk about biases. Let's talk about those biases as they are aligned to the topic tonight, today, and also how they are aligned to teacher raters, the people that evaluate the teachers, when teachers are coming in from different cultures and they are, and I'm not just talking about black and brown, I'm talking about all types of teachers and their boss is not the same, is not from the same culture as them. What are some implicit biases as it relates to this uh, topic? Who wants to take that first? The panel's still open. I will. This is from Juana Marshall. I would love to take that take this topic because this is something I'm passionate about. Um, so the reality is implicit biases exist. And so you talked about when um, teachers come into a building and they may be working for an individual that um, there seems to be some type of action or something that may exist that reflects that there is um, the existence of biases. And so for me, what I have learned over the, the course of this, the last few years, especially as we talk about DEI, there needs to be some type of training. There needs to be some type of real, true professional development centered around biases because a lot of times if people aren't aware that it exists within themselves, then it's hard for them to truly admit and address that it exists. And the reality is it does. So it kind of goes back to what one of the other panelists talked about, um, the culture. So if the culture in the school has already um, been one that in which things have been allowed to go on, things have been allowed to um, uh, be, basically be able to um, go about being conducted a certain way and people are not receptive to change, then they're not going to be open to changing for the better. And where we are today in our society, we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to address the issue that there are hidden biases. And I know even for myself, I took the time out to, to take this training. And, it, you know, for me, it was like an aha moment, like, wow, even for myself, it has nothing to do with race. All of us, and this is have a little sense of bias, but you have to acknowledge it. You have to be aware of it. And for me, as I think about this topic and we talk about like biases, we have to address that. So that goes back to those tough conversations. People don't always want to talk about it, but I'm a realist and I'm transparent. 
we have to have those tough conversations. And it's okay because that is the only way, especially as we bring in teachers um, into our buildings and also as leaders, we have to be able to work collaboratively because you talk about the consensus building, the conflict management, the communication. We cannot achieve that at a successful level unless we truly have those heartfelt, true, needed conversations. And those are those tough conversations. And even with dealing with when we're in the classrooms, you know, helping our, our students, cultural issues are going to come up. And all that to me goes back to teacher preparation programs. And that is, a, a, to me, a major topic that we, we, we need to talk about. How do we go back to those teacher preparation programs, ensuring that our teachers are equipped when they go into the field of teaching students and working with families, how to successfully build those relationships with their families, with their students. And also from a leader perspective, they have to be aware of how to address and communicate with various cultures because I've been in a situation where I constantly would often hear black and brown. And for me, it was like, why do we keep throwing that phrase around so often? Because the black and brown that we're talking about are people that look like me. So let's stop watering it down. Let's stop brushing it under the rug. Let's address it head on. You know what? You took that to a whole nother level. I wasn't expecting that. Mr. Shawana Marshall, creating an atmosphere <laughs> of safety that encourages staff and students social, emotional, and physical well-being is critical for learning. Teachers are expected exactly. to give high-quality instruction aligned to their state standards while maintaining curricula. That's what Dr. Mel just said. While teaching practices effectively and with high expectations and diverse learning environments that are standard-based evidence-based, research-based, and that's engaging, and that is differentiated strategies and structures that's also culturally responsive, data-driven, and consider what students should know and be able to know and do based on those state standards for their lesson. I want to bag up a little bit. I want to bring in Mr. Michael Brown, because there's a key word that stuck out for me, and that was safety. How do you feel about the safety in our schools and our public schools today, especially with all the school shootings going on, the, the crime rates going up? What's your thoughts, sir, about safety in our schools based off of your experience? It's a lot of thoughts. Um, the school that I work at, uh, it's like 1,400 students from 10th grade to well, it's basically an open campus. It's not, uh, what I mean by open is that there's uh, about seven buildings that are standalone buildings, so it's easy to walk through, walk past. But we do have a expert camera system, but we only have two police officers that uh, patrol the school. Uh, it is important with all the school shootings going on that teachers be confident that they're safe. I, I have a different take on how I feel when I get in the classroom because I've been trained and I, I've been through in a mass shooting incident. So I've been there, I've been trained. And so in my mindset, I've got, I know what I'm going to do if this happens. But I think about the other teachers, we only have like one drill at the beginning of the year when we come back for in-service. Then they tell you to have drills during the year we'll you know two, have two or three but they're not training you how to do it nobody's coming by to check and see if you're doing it correctly what i do with my students we practice once a month and i tell them what to do i tell them what i'm going to do i assign what students what to do if someone comes in the classroom it, 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 it still is it's a tension for me that uh it's a possibility that it could happen at the school but also it's a tension because We've had students to come to the school with guns. I've had a student in my classroom with a loaded uh, 45 automatic in his backpack. Uh, it's, it's, we're going to have to, I don't, I don't believe in arming the teachers in the school unless you have a teacher that's been trained because you got to be trained mentally when to use that weapon, how to use that weapon, when not to use that weapon how to secure that weapon, 
So I, I don't I don't advocate teachers having a gun, but I do advocate more training. I do advocate that the teachers be you got to go through constant training at least once a month. I would think because something could happen, and you got to be trained about your mindset, how your mind will go a direction when fear comes because you don't know how you're going to react when fear comes. We, we're just at a, at a place right now in time that we're still in that time warp where some places don't believe this can happen here, but it can happen anywhere. And when you train to look for it or what to look for, then it's a better place of safety. But I just feel like the schools are not safe now. They're soft targets. That's what it's called, a soft target. And uh, people are using that to get their frustration and anger out. And teachers are the target, and they don't get paid enough for what they do. To me, they're in the line of fire, just like policemen and uh, firemen now. Uh, and But you got to love your profession and be able to protect your kids all at the same time, teach your curriculum. Oh, I knew that was going to be good. Thank you for that response. I'm I'm about to open the panel back up, but before I do, let's let's delve into culturally responsive practices. And, and when I mention that, I'm thinking about Letitia Anderson. I'm thinking about Dr. Mel. I'm definitely thinking about Shawana Marshall. I, I, your names just hit hit me uh, just like a freight train because. You've all talked about communication with high expectations. You've talked about active learning. You've you've talked about teaching strategies and communicating those teaching strategies was working. Those teaching methods was working. And you talked about getting to know the students, getting to know and recognize the emotions of those students, Dr. Mel. And you talked about inclusion and, and being culturally responsible. And culturally sensitive, that's the word I'm looking for, culturally sensitive. So I want to open up the panel with this question. The panel is open. My question is this, and whoever wants to take it first, they can. What does a school with positive culture actually look like? We could talk about it all day, but what does it look like? Who wants to take that? Uh, Go ahead. Please go ahead. So... From what I've seen, a school with a positive culture is thriving. What I mean by that is students actually want to come to school and are excited about learning from those individuals in the building. It's not a a student coming to school and having a teacher saying, oh, that's one of those kids. Like, as a and and I've never been an educator. I, I wanted to be a teacher, just didn't, just couldn't do it. But it is a student walking in the class and able to have that back and forth relationship with their teacher and not be a, accused of, you know, oh well, but I, you know, you're you you're being disrespectful. Get out of the class. The the campus is thriving. But I'm going to throw something, I'm going to take it a step further, right? Talking about the culture of a campus, yes, it is good, but your trustees have as much responsibility for the culture on the various campuses as that campus leader or the teacher leaders do as well. So don't forget that. You heard that, trustees. Come on, who's next? Okay, this is Dr. Mel. I think I'd like to answer the question about cultural responsive practices by dipping back to your other question about biases and implicit biases. So I totally agree with what has been said today that we are all biased and we have uh, and we are racist to a large degree. And I think once we all settle that, I think it makes things a lot easier. What the difference is is how comfortable we are with our biases and how comfortable we are with our racism. And in education, there really shouldn't be any place for comfort with any of those. So the way that we become culturally responsive to the issue of bias, I believe, is by developing an honest culture. And what I mean by that is having the training and the opportunity 
to practice discussing difficult topics, both among teachers and then among students. And there is a way that people can talk to others in a civil way and that have different points of view. Uh, right now, what we see um, adults modeling for our uh, students of all ages is that if you have a different position than I have, then you are my enemy. And we cannot have an American society with that type of behavior. And so in order to have culturally responsive practices, I would like to see teacher and student training on how to conduct a conversation when somebody does not have the same position you do and how it is okay for that to happen and by allowing individuals to discuss difficult topics in a way that is civil, I think it adds to the cultural responsiveness of a classroom, of a building, and of a district. So, I mean, that's my take on it. I think we just need training on how to respectfully communicate with one another and then just be honest about our failings as a human being, as a society, as a culture. There's a reason why we're where we are right now. Uh, and one of the solutions that I propose is a process. Again, I always go back to processes. Processes by which people can communicate with one another well, despite the fact that they might have opposing views. I love it. I love it. Who's next? Um, I would like to go next. This is Shawana Marshall um, again. So I do want to address the question that you asked, what does a school look like when they have a positive um, cultural environment? But I do want to kind of um, add to um, what Dr. Mel just said. So I have to, for me, and this is Shawana Marshall speaking, I do uh, somewhat slightly disagree that all people are racist. And the reason being, this is my rationale, because when I look at the word bias, Bias is when we have that unfair um, prejudging of someone, and that can be done mentally without acting on it. So for me, when I may have had those biases that exist in, within my head mentally, it's because of just not truly really knowing. And so that's just a simple lack of not knowing, which, which we sometimes refer to as ignorance, but it doesn't make you a racist. When, you use, when we use the word racist, it's when you act and you show the action of actually discriminating based upon ethnicity. So for me, those are two different things. So those implicit biases can't exist, but it's simply because sometimes we just don't know until awareness is brought to it. But when you become aware that it exists and you still act on those actions that show racism or discrimination, then that's when we are truly showing that we are racist. But so there is a difference in that. And, and that's my personal respectful opinion and so but i going back to what the question you asked about a positive culture a positive school culture that has that culture of where you see social and emotional physical learning environments in which there are healthy relationships amongst the staff the teachers but also the students that's a positive cultural environment but also when we look at the physical aspect, that means students and staff can react, they can engage, they can respond in a way that it shows that, hey, they are truly in a place where they feel comfortable. They are truly in a place where that culture that's been created is one in which they can adapt, they can operate and function without feeling the stressors, you know, that can come up upon us. So we talk about the social, we talk about the emotional, the emotional, that mental piece. So a positive culture that exists for, you know, staff and students is one in which people, it, when you think intelligently or you think mentally, they can function, they can operate. So I think that is so important when you ask that question, what does a positive culture look like? That means you see that existence of the social, the emotional, physical learning environment in which people like, and, and one of the other panels said, you can come to, to that environment and you feel you feel in a place where you're not only welcome, but you can be you. And so I, I did want to add to both parts of that, those um, two important topics. 
Oh no, that, that was wonderful. And the reason why I asked that question because the scientific word behind that is really microaggressions. And, and microaggressions is bigger than racism, is bigger than sexism or being sexist. It, it's bigger than all that because it's, it's something that is deep down and that for whatever reason mostly trauma or how you were developed or the environment you were in or microaggression is as simple as being getting a car accident you get a car accident and then now you you've been traumatized or you was in a bad relationship and so now now you're fighting this microaggression and now you know if you get a leadership role you know, did you get the training like Dr. Mel was saying? Did you get the support like Mr. Brown was saying? Did you did you think yourself clear as Ms. Marshall was saying? Because when you're in a a leadership role, I, I feel like you have to think yourself clear. You can't be biased. But anyway, the panel's still open. Who else wants to take that? What does a positive culture in the school look like? Um, this is Dr. Mel. If, if I could just add a little bit more, because I really love the conversation. I think that we are modeling here today uh, how this might look like, right? If we agree with people or we don't agree or anything in between. So um, the issue about whether we are racist or not, um, I I know that it, that as a society, we take a lot of time discussing it. And I, I think that it's much better if we discuss how comfortable we are with our biases and our uh, racism, because the comfort is something we can begin training to. But um, the reason that I say that, that innately we are set up for this, and um, I, I remember reading a book in college, and it was called Attitude. And it really has, it's an amazing book. It's still in publication. I looked it up. It has, it describes how easily two people that don't even know each other can assume us versus them and how fast it happens. Um, an example that you might all recall was when Oprah did the blue eyes, brown eyes. Um, does anybody remember that, that segment? It was a few years back. Um, but in that segment, um, she purposely set the environment against the blue eyes and the brown eyes were on top. And, and it didn't take very long, five, ten minutes, not even that. And the blue eyes were feeling like second-class citizens simply because of the culture and the, uh, you know, where she, how she responded to them. Um, and I'm just saying that because we as human beings seem to have a knack for immediately having us versus them. Now there's a very positive, there are very positive examples of that. Like, you know, I'm in Kansas city. So the Royals and the Chiefs, those are my, you know, us and all the rest of the football and baseball team. Well, that's them. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of examples of how quickly one feels comfortable in one situation and uncomfortable in another situation because we have an us versus them environment. So the reason I bring up that up is that in order to have a positive, a positive culture, in my opinion, I think we have to understand what is the human kind of propensity for this so that we don't feel, um, uh, you know, that we are uh, fighting against ourselves and we should more be uh, acknowledging who we are and then dealing with it. Yes, I am biased about this, that, and the other. I don't feel comfortable with that. And this is what I'm doing to become a better person. And having that way of dealing with it on all sorts of issues and topics, I think makes it possible for us to have these, you know, um, positive exchanges where everybody is open to listen to other people's opinions and maybe learning from each other. Um, I do realize, you know, I, I'm not that Pollyanna to realize that the American political uh, milieu right now is so 
diametrically opposed that it's hard to understand how we would ever even come to somewhat the middle to have a conversation. But I do know that until we're able to do that, we are not going to be able to move forward. And it's sad to me that anybody, anybody that attempts to be in the middle, you know, get it from both sides and it makes it hard for us to have those conversations. But I think there is a, a jeopardy for all of us to not have the opportunity to talk to others in a civil way about what is important and what moves society forward. And naturally, the answer has to be that we are inclusive and that our differences make us more, that uh, make us stronger and make us a better society. And uh, it is a much better culture and that we honor maybe how people feel. Um, and then maybe at some point we can talk about the difference between sharing information and sharing propaganda, which is, I think, a different subject, but it is one that is affecting right now um, our ability to have a pos positive culture. Oh, this is so good. Listen, I'm, let me, I'm going to do a, a mix up. I'm going to do a mixer uh, with this, this podcast today. This is getting so good. I, I told you it was going to be good. This society right now that we live in in the United States, I'm going to say, is in a quagmire. And how do they get there? The conversation today could be a quagmire. But let me, let me knock you in the popcorn section real quick. You know who the greatest fighter is? Love. Love is the greatest fighter of mm -hmm. all time. And with that being said, let me go around the horn. Let me go around the panel real quick because I want to see what you guys are up to, what you guys are doing. And uh, let's start with um, let's start with you, Doctor Mel. What you got going on? Talk about it. Where you at? Uh, you mean in general or re in response to your? No, 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 no. Um, we're talking about, about no, no. We're talking about you right now. What do you have going on? What are you doing currently okay. in your field, and where are you healing from? Talk about it. Well, I feel like in hearing the other panelists that we might all be doing similar things, maybe in slightly different, you know, uh, areas of society. So what I do on a, a daily basis is try to work with teachers and principals and superintendents about helping children who have experienced early trauma to be successful in school because early trauma does affect behavior. Uh, you know, they dysregulate maybe a little bit more than other students, not able to pay attention as much, not able to focus. So critical thinking and executive function skills are not necessarily there. And so I, I know that the children who have suffered, um, racism as a trauma or violence in the in the community because of it as a trauma or poverty as a trauma or even medical trauma uh, those children have come out of those experiences and maybe don't even come out of those experiences. continue to experience those those situations throughout their academic careers and beyond and it's it's important to me to provide solutions for how children um, might deal with a racist situation and even microaggressions, as you said, because microaggressions are difficult in that, you know, you get the feeling, or especially a child, they will get the feeling that something was said that wasn't right and they don't quite understand why they're feeling uh, what they're feeling. And so I think we begin by saying, yes, these are microaggressions and these are examples of microaggressions. And this is an, uh, just a, an example of how you might deal with a microaggression. And again, I go back to processes. There are processes for how we teach children to do all of these things uh, because our children are not always um, with adults that can mediate and support and help them through those microaggressions or their uh, or the challenges that they they 
feel as they are continuously re-traumatized excuse me da- disciplinary action excuse me dr mail will you come back on the podcast Oh, absolutely! Yeah. All right, absolutely. Yeah, okay. I, I think- let me let me go to the next guest because I want to ask them because we're doing an introduction real quick, and we're gonna get you back on if that's okay. So I'm gonna let you finish up, and then we will go to the next guest. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for for the kind invitation. So I feel that all of us are trying to address the same issues from different angles, and I would just say that you know, processes seem to be the way that we can both uh, help teachers and help students. Absolutely. And Mr. Michael Brown, please let us know a little bit about yourself and what you're doing currently. Okay. Uh, Right now, I'm the criminal justice teacher at uh, West Memphis High School. uh, And I started that program there. It's the first one in the Mississippi Delta. And I was previously a 28-year police veteran, Memphis Police Department. Um, But I'm also a pastor for 12 years. I'm still an online pastor. And I do other things, self-defense instructor and um, a mentor. And I teach classroom uh, development, uh, classroom uh, communication uh, uh, and verbal de-escalation and conflict resolution. I'm all about, um, you know, safety, spiritual safety, uh, physical safety, uh, safety in the classroom, safety in the mental aspect for the kids. Uh, like Dr. Mill was talking about, there's a there's a, a rift between society and our children. The classroom is a microchasm of what we're seeing on the outside. And uh, these kids, they're really experiencing, you know, uh, trauma, PTSD. And uh, being an officer, I've had that before. And uh, so I try to spend my time and train and teach people and help them through all these things and uh, and try to steer my students, all races, white, you know, black, Hispanic, uh, try to steer them toward careers in uh, criminal justice, uh, especially our, uh, uh, you know, black kids, try to steer them in that direction and try to get them back again, trusting uh, the police and trusting the system, and I know that's hard to do, and we do have some corruption, but there's a system, and the system will work if it's operated correctly. Oh, that was good. That was good. And Letitia Anderson, please tell us a little bit about yourself, what you got going on currently. So what I have going on, I am I am juggling getting my master's, um, trying to raise a soon-to-be 17-year-old, all while trying to encourage people to run for office and I have created a whole training on it. Um, you know, I, I tell people I didn't know anything about running for office. I just knew that the school district was not providing my son's services. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to be a school board trustee. I didn't know what it took to be it. Had no clue. And when the time came, I stepped out there and ran. And I won by a huge margin. And so I said, you know, I want to encourage people to run. I know a lot of them say, hey, you know what? I don't have the time to be a school board trustee. But looking at these times, we need people more than ever to run. People who believe that Students should be successful and not police for their skin tone. Mm-hmm. So I want to be the individual that provides the tools and tell people my story. I was one of those kids. But while I was on the board, I graduated with my bachelor's with a 3.65 GPA and now moving on to my master's and they're trying to get me to come teach. I, I'm not an educator. I just want to I just enjoy helping people. That's my passion. And so I want to help individuals uh, far or wide (laughs) or in my community run for office. I don't care what seat it is, if it's school board, if it's city council. I just want to tell my experience and hope somebody is able to say, you know what? I'm going to step out there and do it. And, And you know what? You provided me with the tools to know 
what's going to come at me. So that's what I'm up to. Oh, that's good. And, and Shawanda Marshall, I want to ask you a question, but first, what you got going on currently and where are you coming from? Like, what city, what state? Talk about it. Okay. I am actually originally from Alabama, but I am currently residing in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And so currently I work in the Office of Federal Special Programs. And basically in our office, we deal with compliance, monitoring, ensuring that schools are basically implementing those programs um, that are required by the Department of Education. So that's my career um, as of current. And so what I have going on outside of that, I have my own empowerment organization. Um, I created in 2020 when COVID hit. Um, I realized that I needed to walk more of my purpose, and it's all about encouraging women through spirituality, inspiration, and support. That's my baby. That's my brand. And all those, I I thrive on um, just where I get where my heart is touched the most is helping people and just being a sense of support for all people. This was something that I wanted to create for women because I know some of the challenges and experiences that women typically go through. And I just wanted to be that sense of support. Um, but currently something that I'm even more proud of, I am currently in the dissertation phase of my PhD in public policy mm-hmm. administration. So hopefully next year, I will graduate. That's my goal, May of 2024. So this topic, um, everything that everybody's talking about is something that really in my in my heart and my soul just it's just you can't even imagine how it makes me feel. And so for me, I just came off a huge national conference. Um, it was our National Educator Association uh, Representative Assembly. So I got a chance to serve as a delegate on that. And so I'm very active in my educator organization. So even though I'm not in the classroom anymore. I am still part of, I still want to be part of an entity that advocates for teachers and all educators. So for me, that's something that I have going on. And I do want to share this quote that was um, actually shared at our conference to everyone. And the quote goes, um, if not me, who? If Mm -hmm. not then, when? And so when someone shared that quote, it just reminded me of why I decided to pursue this path. Um, and, and public policy administration because I wanted to be part of that social change. Not just talking about it, not just having conversations about it, but be uh, that person that would act. That person that was not afraid to stand up and speak out about those things that we need to talk about, have conversations about, but also be that person that's about action. And so those mm-hmm. are things that I have going on right now and so uh, I'm just excited about this moment it's time to be able to share with everyone and so um, thank you that's what I have going on but I'm ready for your question well my question is will you come back onto the podcast I sure will <laughs> I sure will thank you absolutely Bye. listen we, we're out of time we are out of time I, I'm I'm a little bit upset I know you are too but I am upset let me ask this one question so when are we going to bring you back Dr. Miller we're going to bring you back let me ask you one. Let me. The panel was open. Let me ask you one question real quick. So, there is a. There inflation is here, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry. There is inflation, and because of inflation, there are surging prices with school supplies. We, we're about to be <laughs> in a couple of days, few weeks, depending on what district you're in. We're about to start back to school. Okay. Now there is a gap. And you probably know where I'm going right now. The panel is open. But there is a gap. There is a lack of resources in our public schools, especially in those public schools with those low socioeconomic or social disadvantaged students, however you want to call them. But if the teachers don't buy those school supplies for those students, they won't even have them. They won't even get them. A lot of parents can't even afford them. Especially with these prices, the panel is open. What is some what? What can we do? What is the situation? How are you seeing it through your lens? What's your point of view about the gap and resources in our public schools? The panel is open. Who wants to take that first? All right. Can I can I delve on that a little bit? Um, the fraternity that I'm in, our chapter has uh, adopted a school that's in a place called Gurdon, Arkansas, and it's extreme poverty. And uh, the kids, uh, you know, sometimes they don't get a meal. So 
so we've adopted this school and we give school supplies, backpacks, and we'll go out in the community and also get food that'll go into the backpacks and give to the kids. Uh, right now, unless we can uh, push to some of the businesses and corporations to be able to give to the kids, because there's enough money in the United States, there's enough money in all these cities where it can be pushed to that. But the importance is not on education. And I believe that in the private schools where our kids, where the black and brown kids are not, uh, they're getting all the assistance that they need. But it, it almost feels like that they don't want our children to succeed because they're not doing the things to help them to succeed. That will be the one thing that can knock down a lot of crime. If a child believes he has a future and that he can go farther than just in the classroom in school. But in order to be able to do that, it's like Maslow's, you know, the hierarchy that the, the needs, the basic needs have to be fulfilled. And those of us that have the ability to do that, we got to do it in any shape, form or fashion that we can. Thank you for that. Who's next? That was good. This is, this is Dr. Mel. Um, um, go ahead, Dr. Mel. Oh, thank you. Um, I am so glad uh, to kind of reinforce what you just said because corporations right now are making profits that have never been registered before. Further, there are more millionaires and billionaires in the United States than there have ever been before. And I think that those are resources that we should approach in order to address this gap. Um, and maybe we have to find a way that it, it's to their advantage to do this or they somehow get some credit or what. I don't know what that answer is. But I do know that the ask should be there, at least of corporations, uh, to have programs that address these gaps because they are making record pro uh, profits. Thank you for that. This is Shawana Mark. I do want to add to this conversation because being a teacher, a former teacher in the classroom, you shared something, um, Isaiah, that was about information sharing. Something I've learned through, I've learned through my experience in education that schools are generally that are high impoverished are um, free and reduced have a high rate of free and reduced uh, percentage at their schools. Funding federal funding is received at that school. So one thing that I would like to share on this podcast is for families and for parents as they get involved um, in the school and learn more about their school. They are privileged to information to find out how schools are budgeting or allocating their funds. And being a person that has taught the majority of her time at Title I schools, that was something that I didn't always know because it wasn't something that was generally shared. And now that I know, I want to share that because during those times when schools have those Title I planning meetings or have those annual planning meetings, that's information that is shared with families. And the reason I think that is important because if parents are aware of how the funds are being spent, one of the things that they can get feedback on through surveys is giving their input on, you know, as far as like the funding and how that budget is being spent. Because schools, there is a way a lot of times through these schools that are in those high poverty areas to have funds set aside to make sure students and teachers have what they need. And being a, an educator that has spent a lot of her money over the years for her children. It was because I wanted them to have what they needed. I wanted my kids to be set up for success and I wasn't going to wait on anyone else to do it. But I want to empower our families and our parents to get involved and learn and go to their schools and go to these meetings and find out how are their schools budgeting their funds because there is a way to ensure that schools ensure that they provide the resources that students need. That, to me, that is more important. And I, I, I'm a part of authority. And so we, we support and we have adopted, we adopted school, but also I feel like instead of reaching out into the companies and the organizations, first find out how are schools budgeting their funds. So I, I did want to share that. Oh my goodness. Who's next? Who's next? That was good. Uh, this, this is Letitia Anderson. You got me over here hooping and hollering. 
So the way to reach I'm these sorry. organizations, this is another way, this is another thing that parents also miss. Parent-teacher association, that's where I got my start. Did you know that there are parent-teacher associations that uh, do so much fundraising they can pay for a teacher's salary for a year? So I would encourage parents, if your campus has a PTA or a PTSA, the person from, I know here in Austin ISD, when you're a PTA president, you be on that campus uh, advisory, which is where you can find out uh, how your campus is utilizing its budget. But the PTA is where you can tap into those various organizations to get those funds. And another thing that parents can also do, I think when you talk about these, um, when you talk about Title I campuses, a lot of our parents do not have that social capital. And so going to different um, going to different businesses and different organizations to try to tap into these funds, you know, if you see me, I am heavily tattooed. I got a gold in my mouth. And the first thing people think when they see me is ghetto. But then once I start talking, and so I think a lot of that, getting over that mindset, but trying to tell people, hey, this is why we are coming to you, helping them to understand the why versus looking at me, making an assumption. But if a campus had, I can't urge enough, if a campus has a PTA or a PTSA, Parent Teacher Association, a Parent Student uh, Teacher Association, please, please, please join because the PTA has a lot of power, including fundraising. And depending on the campus, like I say, there are some campuses that I know of that is able to pay a teacher's salary. Think about it. And PTA is the right, of, the right organization to approach corporations or other organizations for fundraising because they have they have clout. Oh, this is good. Listen, we, we are out of time. Before we go, before we go, we went out of time. Wow. Before we go, give us one a one-liner on a takeaway that you got from this podcast, this episode today. A one-liner. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. My takeaway, um, I would love to come back. Uh, Breathtaking. Uh, Yes, all of those. You're welcome. You're welcome to come back. Come on. Who's next? All right. This is Shawana Marsh, and my takeaway is, Oh my goodness! Continue to do what you are doing, Mr. Drone. This is so impact. This is so impactful. It's so powerful, and it's so motivating. And it just it really fuels for me to continue doing what I'm doing, walking in my purpose, so I can continue to be more of a voice and an advocate for people who don't understand how to be an advocate for themselves. Blessings always. Who's next? Well, I'm going to, um, you know, continue the, the thought that that was just placed before us, uh, Mr. Drone. This is a this is an exciting and, and wonderful opportunity for us to hear your questions and then the answers from all of us, especially coming from different points of view. So I'm sorry, that's not what I meant. From different uh, areas of, of expertise, uh, and so I am excited. I am excited for for having heard the panel and also to answer your questions. I'm, I'm feeling um, very uh, warm and fuzzy right now. Thank you. Blessings to you as always. Okay, I'd just like to say I enjoyed it. If you want me back, I'm here. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done, but there's a lot of great ideas that can dive in and get the work done. You know you coming back. Well, listen, this was another impactful day of the Impact Education Leadership. Good day. How are we going? Bye. Educational Leadership Podcast.
Facebook.